morning. Good morning. I'm so glad that you've chosen to be here on this uh, Sunday morning. I want to make sure that we welcome the so many of you who are choosing to join us uh, in our church and around the world virtually this coming week. We're just so glad that you're joining us this morning. It's been an interesting series, unless... I mean, that's been the name of this pre-summer series that we've been walking through. And the heart of this series, if you've been with us for part of the whole thing, is simple. The goal was to call upon us as a family, our whole church family, to keep in step with what God has already done and is choosing to do. Really, if you've been listening closely so far, the focus has been this, unless we unless we, unless we believe the promises of God, the ones that are for all churches and the unique ones in this season for us, unless we join and keep in step with the promptings of the Spirit, unless we hold on and hold out the pure gospel to a dark world, unless we commit to this thing called church community, unless we stop and choose to celebrate the life change in so many people's lives, unless we get uncomfortable We will not be able to keep up with what Jesus himself, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, has chosen to be done here. But, and there is a big one, yet if there is one thing we have not talked about, if there's one thing that undergirds this whole series, if there's one truth that starts the conversation really, and one truth that ends the conversation, if there's one unless, if there's one promise that is both the foundation of the house and the, and the gas in the car so we can keep going, it is this. It is unless God moves. Unless God chooses to move and chooses to keep on moving, there will not be a lasting, there will not be a powerful, there will not be long-term, eternal, consuming change in you personally, in your family, in your connect group, in this church, and oh, can I say it, in this region. See, we choose to end this series simply with this. Unless God moves... All we do here, even in good intention, is vain. All will be lost, and in the light of eternity, it will be washed away. Now, if there is a group of verses, if there is part of Scripture that brings this cherished but threatening theme home to us as a family, it is found in the hymn book of the Scriptures. It's found in the Psalms, the cherished place that every generation of God followers has gone to, to mourn out of, to sing out of, to, to scream at God and walk with God. It is the emotional heart of Scripture. Would you turn to Psalm 127? If you got your Bible physically, virtually, if you got it on a device, we're good either way. But turn to Scripture, Psalm 127. Now, if you've done church for a long time, you know these verses. But let me take a moment for all of us, whether you are not a Christian and you are wrestling with this, if you've just become a Christian, you've been a Christian for months, years, decades. Let's all just take just a little step back and understand the background of these little verses. Now, the Psalms, like I just said, are an actual organized hymn book and chorus book. That's what they were and are. And in the Psalms, there are multiple mini sections. One of them One of these mini sections is Psalm 120, 
through Psalm 134. This is one of the little sections found in the scriptures called the Psalms. Now, this section makes up this little psalm book, and each psalm, if you notice, has a description of why it, was, why it came to be, where it was used. It's, it's descriptive. But here's what unites 120 through 134, and this is going to help us as we hear the Word of God expounded this morning. These songs were sung as a community. These were sung to remind the community of the wisdom of God, the worship of God, and God's own commands. They were worship songs that exalted God, taught theology, and led people back into the needed posture. Everyone ready? Of knowing our need for the love of God and the call for us to continually know our need for Him. That is why these are called the Psalms of Ascent. They are songs for the journey. They were used and sung as God's people came up three times a year and met with the living God in Jerusalem. These are called gradual psalms, songs of pilgrimage, songs, psalms of steps written by David and his son Solomon. And they were sung as people gathered to celebrate the greatest worship times in the Jewish calendar. Now in Deuteronomy 16, this is the command by God for the people to come up. Let me just read it quickly. It reads like this. All your men must appear before your God, your God, three times each year at the place he designates at the Feast of Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. No one, no one, no one is to show up in the presence of God empty-handed. Oh, I could preach a sermon right now, but I won't. Each person must bring as he as, as much as he can manage, giving generously in response to the blessings of God, your God. Now notice this, not just of God, your God. This is bound to those who already are in relationship with God. So three times a year... There was a command that all the people were called to come meet and worship the living God as community. Now, it says men here, but the families would come along with the men. So I I want you to catch this. Can you imagine, can you feel the experience of hundreds of thousands, and even at certain points in history, millions of people walking together from the whole Roman Empire or whatever empire they were involved in in the diaspora, coming towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, and as they are all walking together, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of God followers, they break out in these songs and they sing what we're about to read. See, we read these and we forget that this is Hillsong for the old school. This is Jesus culture and the Gaithers back then. Whatever your poison is. You know what I'm saying. Isaac Watts, good. This is worship. This isn't dead theology. These were sung. Now, by the way, I'm not going to break out in song this morning. I believe in gift-based ministry, so don't worry about it. Thank you. I'm not going to, as we say in the worship team, Jerome it. He's not here, but you all understand. But these are worship songs, and we miss the power of them because we forget that these were memorized probably by all people who knew God, and when one person would break out, then another person would break out, and suddenly thousands of people would break out in this unbelievable worship experience, and this is what they'd sing. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand, watch in vain. In vain you rise up early and you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Now, I want you to remember who this was written by. 
This wasn't written by David. This was written by Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Now, think about him for a moment if you know his story. Think about his background, his gifts, think about what he did, and then just listen to the plain words of this song. Solomon built his own house for 13 years. Nice house. God told David that David was not allowed to build the temple, but he gave David the plans and the resources, and with all that strategic planning, David passes it on to Solomon. Solomon builds the temple for seven years after all the work his dad has done. He built cities. He fortifies cities. Actually, what's amazing about Solomon's time is the gates he actually built in ancient Israel are still talked about today by archaeologists. This is a man of vision. This is a man of money. This is a man of ultimate supreme authority in his day. This is a man of worship. This is a man of delegation. This is a man of hard work. This is both worshiper and worker. And interestingly, don't miss the power of this this morning. He, the ultimate expression of what we would say in the West, is the ultimate success, the American dream on steroids. He says to us, it is vain to build a house. It is vain to guard a city. It is vain to rise up early and stay up late eating the food written, uh, bought by heavy labor if God is not at the center. See, here is the problem in the West with the Protestant work ethic. It forgot that actually it started as worship, not greed. And Solomon comes along and he says, It is all vanity. It is all vanity. If you do all this amazing stuff, and yet God is not the center. If God has not started the process, if God is not honored during the process, if God is not acknowledged as the source of all, then building and guarding and eating is vanity. It is vain. Now, it's interesting, when you think about the word vain, we use words all the time in our culture, but never think about what they really mean. Vain means ineffective. And you go, but Solomon wasn't ineffective. And he says, oh, from human standpoint, I was unbelievably effective. But from heaven's standpoint, if God is not honored, it's all ineffective. Amen? It's hopeless. That's what vain means. Hopeless, unsuccessful, futile. And here's the big one. It is worthless. Only what God blesses really lasts, right? Oh, no, and don't miss this. What is the ugly heart of a vain existence? It's another word that is connected. It's called vanity, pride, narcissism, self-importance, conceit, arrogance, the worked out belief intellectually or experientially that we can do it on our own and we don't really need God. As I've preached before, who needs to pray the Lord's Prayer anymore? We don't need daily bread. We've got loblaws, right? This is the great tension that Solomon is facing down and is written under the inspiration of God and is sung to remind the people of the great danger all around them all the time that we can end up so quickly being like Adam and Eve and saying, we will be like God and we do not need you or know you for we know better than you. Solomon says, in all you do, honor God. In all you do, do you not remember That you are not creator, but there is a creator who is God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. 
And all resources came from him. As the old preachers used to say, who do you think put the gold in the mountains in the first place? You. And all you do remember, it's never about you at the beginning or in the end. Here we see the tension between planning and prompting. Here we see the honest God-given tension between God's very sovereign call and human responsibility. And it's in this tension that we individually this morning and we as a church family are stopped and we have to face down the extremes that we naturally tend to go towards. Either presumption, I don't need God, I'm going to be just fine, I'm going to pull up my own bootstraps, or apathy, God's going to do everything, I don't need to do anything, and we'll see if he works it out. And if he doesn't, it's not my fault, I'm not lazy, I just, I just like God's sovereignty. Hmm. Now, if there's one side you need to err on, it is God's sovereignty. And God's work. As another wrote, better to magnify God than ourselves. Better always to stress His grace over our works. Why? Because it moves us into that space, that so needed space, especially us who live in the West, to see that God is the creator, to see that each breath and all we have comes from God's own hand. See, this psalm this morning is really about us understanding two significant, massive, all-consuming ideas. Here it is. All we have and do comes from God's own hand. And second, we must live our life with that worldview all the time. Or as another put it, since God usually gives nothing unless we work for it, there is an extreme possibility and danger for us to start believing and become confused and and begin to work out a worldview that says actually we're the ones who provide for ourselves and God is just a distant, disconnected God and who cares? Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. When I was reading that this week, I learned something that I'd heard years and years ago and forgotten, and it actually is going to bring this sermon very close to many of you this morning here and online, and will actually bring some godly uncomfortability, but we prayed about that last week, so we're okay with that now, right? See, the word house can mean house. It can mean house, but actually in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, it has another meaning. See, it also means your family. I want you to hear this. I mean, Solomon spent 13 years building a house. So does he mean it literally? I think he does, but it's deeper than that. It also means your biological family, your adoptive family, your family in and around you, husband, wife, in this context, slave and master, children. All the relationships are connected here. It's actually about managing the household. You say, well, John, where do you get that? Well, in the Exodus... When Pharaoh begins to declare genocidal war against the Israelites, the first thing he does is this. He gets to the midwives and he says to the midwives, I want you to murder every baby boy that is born. Do you remember that? And the midwives lie in the name of God. You can work that out later. And it says in Exodus one twenty one, and because the midwives feared God, they would not kill these young babies. He gave them families of their own. But in Hebrew, it actually says, he made them into houses. See, here's the power of this statement, this song that we know so readily, and yet we we miss what God is trying to bring so close home to us, what hope he wants to express, such conviction he wants to give us today. Here it is. Unless God builds the house, 
or unless God builds your family, it's all vanity and it's all vain. Unless God shows up in all the primary relationships you're involved in, husband, wife, best friends, uh, between parents and siblings, parents, like all of this, even what's suggested in Scripture, it also deals with all the secondary relationships, like gaining property and, and getting wealth. Here's the point. Unless God Almighty, who is close, not far, builds the house, unless God shows up and builds your family, unless God. See, God must do it. God must inspire. God must empower. He must give resources, and He must give gifts, and He must give His blessing. He must start the ball rolling. He must sustain the ball as it keeps going, and He must end the project. How true, listen, how true this is for our relationship with God. If God did not sustain our walk with Him, would it survive, yes or no? No. Unless God builds our own faith. That is why I love the book of Hebrews where Jesus is declared as the author of our faith. Unless God sustains that house, it's done. But it's deeper. How true for our church family. How true for your own family. I think we could all agree this morning that many of us, if we were honest and got all the noise down and put the social media off for a moment and turned the television off and we stopped being so distracted only for an hour and asked ourselves the question, do I need an intervention from the living God in my family? Many of us would say, yes. I need God, the God who created all things. I need God who knows every hair or lack of hair on our heads. I need God who sees all and knows all and can forgive all and can bring things back from death to life. I need the restoring God to show up and do something I cannot do unless God. See, we need God to build some families in C4. Would you agree? We need God to build some friendships in this church. We need God to build some marriages in this church. We need God to build the house because if the house building is left up to us, we're going to end up seeing so much of what we do, even with good intention, become vain, not lasting, temporary, ineffective, or dead. The great cry of our culture just to pull your bootstraps up and you've got the might and power to save things is a lie. God needs to get involved in the everyday rhythms of life because if he's not involved, we are left up with us and human history and your own thought life reveals to you and to me and to all of us it's not going to go so well. You know, it's interesting, Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great church leader of his day, preached out of this passage to young adults. It's very interesting when I discovered it this week thinking about our 905 community. Martin Luther preached out of this passage to young adults and teenagers, and then at the same time, while he was preaching to them, he would preach to all the people who were older who had been married for a while. He used it like a double-edged sword to hit two communities. Now, I want you to listen to what this guy was preaching in the 16th century and see if it has relevance for us today. Because nothing's new under the sun, right? So this is what he says. Lean in and listen. You online? Look at the laptop. Okay. He says, this passage alone, he says, if you didn't read the rest of the Bible, just this little verse 
should be enough to attract young people to marriage. And then says, and comfort all who are married and sap the strength of the evil called coveting. I love this. He says, young people are scared away from marriage when they see how strangely it turns out. Modern translation, it's freaking weird out there. I don't want to touch this. How many young adults and teenagers have looked at our lives or their parents' life or society and go, are you joking me? Man, if that's what marriage is, I'm out. Martin Luther is here sitting in Germany preaching this in a so-called Christian community and Christian country, which of course it wasn't. But you get, and he's saying, they're saying back then, wow, it's really weird out there. And then he quotes them. I love this. He says, this is what they say to me. Well, it takes a lot to make a home. Agreed? Or I love this one. You learn a lot by living with a woman. Hmm. Okay. I won't comment. I'll just keep preaching. And then this is what he preaches. This is because they as young people fail to see who does this and why God does it. And since human ingenuity and strength know no recourse and can provide no help, they hesitate to marry. And as a result, what do they do? They fall into unchastity, sexual sin, and and they choose not to marry even though that may be God's heart for them. And they fall into sin. And then he says, but the married people listening to my message, well, they're the opposite. They're now been married for a while, and they're struggling with worry all the time, and they're also struggling with coveting. You want a modern translation? The grass sure looks greener over there, and it looks pretty brown right here. Maybe, maybe it's better to leave this thing. And then he preaches, but here is the needed consultation. Let the Lord build the house and let the Lord keep it, and do not encroach on God's own work. The concern for these matters are God's. They're not yours. Does it take a lot to make a house? He says, so what? God is greater than any house. He who fills the heavens and the earth will surely also be able to supply the needs of a house, especially, and this is when it hit me, especially since God takes the responsibility for the house upon himself and causes it to be sung to his own praise. He says, God is so into this that he says, I'm going to take the responsibility for your house. And I so believe in this. I'm going to inspire someone to write a worship song that's going to be sung back to me because my glory is connected to me building your house. And we live in a church culture and in a culture that says, well, it's up to you. I hope it works out. Young people look around and say, I'm not touching that. Better to live with someone for five years and have the out card because the thing in front of me really hasn't shown me it works. But we're not the world, everybody. We're the church. We're members of the kingdom. And God comes and says, Oh, I'll work on your house if you let me show up. The question this morning is, Do you want God to show up? See, as I teach at every wedding, the person you must love more than your spouse and more than your children and more than your work is Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more you'll become like Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more your spouse will love you. Why? Because Jesus makes us fully human. The reality is many of us don't want God to show up in our house, and then things fall apart, and we're not willing to have the deep, intricate, motive conversations, and then we say, God didn't show up, and God goes, hold on a second. Actually, my house the whole time, you just didn't let me in the front door a lot. God is at the center. But see, if God is not trusted to build the house, 
then many run from what God is inviting them to do. And if they're already doing what God has invited them to do, they are filled with such worry because they're not really seeing God show up when they think he should. And so what do they do? They try in their own power to solve situations. It's the same with church. Many of us, if we're honest, let's be honest, I don't want to go to church. I mean, sure, I'll sit in the back or in the front or whatever my, my pleasure is, but I don't want to really, really get involved, like, deeply. I mean, look how it turns out. I mean, I'm so, it's so weird at church, and people say one thing and do others, and, and, and then other people who are deeply committed in every local church like this, when you worry all the time, you worry and worry, well, I don't like how this is happening, and I know the leader's doing that, and look at how people's lives are falling apart, and I, I better step up and do everything because no one's doing the right thing, and, and other people say, oh, I just want out of this mess. I, I, it looks more fun. It looks more exciting. Well, no, here's what it really is. It looks less complicated. So maybe just me and Jesus can do our things, and I, I don't have to involve myself in all this stuff. Look to the Lord, C4. Let God build his own house and let him worry about it. Who asked you to take his job? We must not abandon our duty. We must surrender it. We must pray, we must seek wisdom, and we must seek his intervention. Now, I could stop right there, and that would be like an amen moment. Amen moment. We could reflect, but the song's not done. See, not only must we acknowledge God, which is so significant, and ask him to come for our families and come into our friendships and come into our church community. He says, oh, oh, the conversation's not done. See, there's more. Not only can we not control or build our family, ready everyone, at the level of the soul, at the level of motive, at the level of worship and relationship between us and the divine. Here's the other thing too. You can't protect your own city whether you want to or not. Unless the Lord watches over the city, read the scriptures. The guards stand watch in vain. In ancient times, huge walls, right, built around cities, watchmen looking out for imminent attack. We live in a global community now. We turn on our televisions. We go on Twitter and Instagram. We go on Facebook, and continually we are inundated with terrorism and violence. We have global armies and global security systems and sophisticated devices that if Paul knew about, he'd probably say the Antichrist had already shown up, like wild stuff. We live in a world where technology is all about offense and defense. But here's the point. You can't protect everything all the time. At a moment of weakness, something's going to go wrong. I mean, I think we all honestly saw that on a national level in Boston just a few weeks ago. Everything, everything, everything. So tried desperately so innocence would not be touched, and yet innocence always is touched. It's interesting, one pastor preaching out of this says, you know, the watchman may stand on the walls at night scanning the horizon for invaders, but he can't control their approach. Have you thought about that? They may have already infiltrated the walls. They may be hiding in a Trojan horse. They may be tunneling under the defenses of the unseen. And if it's true in the ancient world, it's true today. But see, here's what the scriptures say, friends. Oh, how we need the Lord. The Lord Almighty, the the Lord of hosts, 
the God of angel armies, to rise up and guard our city, a guard that is ourselves and our family, and, and guard our community called church. It will only stand or fall as he desires and intervenes. And since we are Christians gathering here today, we acknowledge what reality, capital, capital R, is. Reality is not just physical. Reality is physical and spiritual blended together. They are not separated. How we need to ask the living God of heaven and earth to come and truly protect you as a Christian and protect your family and protect our church because we are in the middle of the oldest and ugliest and most violent war that has ever been waged because it has been waged before the beginning of Eden and it is called spiritual conflict. What does Paul describe his world and our world like? In Ephesians chapter 6, he says this in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Think about Jesus. Jesus faces down evil systematically, politically, institutionally, and incarnationally all the time. Jesus says, I want to teach you how to pray. We all know this, or most of us do, the Lord's Prayer, right? This becomes the foundational bedrock of how we are called to pray and what themes we must engage in. Most people would say that the Lord's Prayer is a good prayer to pray every day. Wouldn't you agree? I hope you do. How does Jesus end it? But he starts it, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, unless God. See, he starts with the right place. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You show up and bring what's up there down here. Give us this day our daily bread. We acknowledge you need to show up and provide. Forgive us our trespasses. Change our heart and give us the ability to forgive others. Why? Because that's the way things work. But then he says, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from what? The evil one. Are you so ignorant or arrogant as a Christian to believe That when God, the second person of the Trinity, instructs you every day to pray for your spiritual protection, that you don't? Do you think this is a fake war, a phony war that looks real, but there's real no power? Listen, Scripture is clear. Put your armor on every day. Realize this is real, and you better ask God to guard your city. Because if you don't, something else is going to show up in your city that you cannot handle. Unless God builds our house... Unless God comes and guards us, we must ask God to come to our defense, ask God to protect us from people and things that hate him and us. How many times in the Bible when all things were lost, when all things from a human standpoint were done, did then the Lord come and intervene? I love 2 Chronicles 32.7. Judah is in the worst situation ever. The king of Assyria has now shown up. He is the superpower of the day. And this is what the king says. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria has a vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than there is with him. For with him there is only an arm of flesh. I love this. But with us, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and he will fight our battles. They are surrounded by the United States of their day. And they've got nothing. And the king stands up and says, all is lost, but it's not. Why? Because they're coming at us with every modern invention of weaponry, but it is flesh. The one who is with us is the God of angel armies. And when he shows up, humans never win. 
but they understood that they needed to humble themselves and ask for the living God to show up. Think about this too, the great summary of how Israel has moved into the promised land. Psalm 44, it's with your hand, God, you drove out the nations. You planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples. You made our ancestors flourish. It's not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, God, the light of your face, for you love them. You are my king and my God. You decree victories for Jacob, though through you, notice this, through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I will not put trust in my bow. I will not put trust in my sword. It does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies, and you put our adversaries to shame. In God, we will make our boasting all day long, and we will praise your name forever. And we all say, amen. Unless God builds the house... Unless God guards the city. Now, here's a side note for the more pragmatic people among us. Notice it's not saying it's wrong to build a house. It's not wrong to build a family. It's not wrong to guard a city. None of this is improper. But as followers of God, we must actually ask God for his direct intervention because if we don't, we will become vain, we will become proud. And we will put ourselves in situations that we will either reject the God we supposedly worship or ignore the God we supposedly worship and we will not seek God and we will fall. But there's more. (laughs) See, in this worship song of ascent, not only are we called to know the source of all good things, not only are we called to ask God for personal direction and intervention, He also wants us to face down Two idols that will lead us to that place. In vain you rise up early, and you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, but he grants sleep to those he loves. Now, is this saying that if you have a sleep disorder, that you don't trust? No, no, no. no. This, is, this is a greater conversation. This is what God is declaring, though. Here's the key. You can sleep, i.e., you can rest when you trust God. You work hard, you pray hard, you walk with God, but then you go to bed and you leave it in His hands. You need to work and rest alongside the sovereign work of God. See, here's where the Sabbath principle is so powerfully given. When we work and we work and we work and we do not trust God and we do not wait for God, then we never rest and everything we want to produce is vain. Why? Because, everyone ready? Because you're either motivated by greed or unbelief. Let me say it again. If you work your whole life in whatever you do, and you're up early and you're up late, and you do not allow for and think on the sovereignty of God and involve Him, your motives will either end up becoming greedy, I must do more because God has not given me what I deserve yet, or unbelief, God will not show up And I don't need him or I don't believe he's going to help me. So I will not trust him. God gives, as one wrote, to those who have learned to rest in him. Not to those who strive by their own strength. I love the New American Standard translation of this. Because I think it brings home what God is trying to communicate. Everyone ready? It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late. To eat the bread of painful labor. For he gives his beloved even in his sleep. 
See, he's not saying work is wrong. It's not saying planning is wrong. It's not saying that getting up early and having a good work ethic is wrong. But the question is, what is your motive and what is your glasses and your worldview? Are you motivated by coveting? Give me more. Are you motivated by greed? Are you, are you motivated by worry? See, our motives expose our true heart's posture when it comes to ultimate trust. Do you really fundamentally, as a Christ follower, surrender your idea that God will provide what he wants to provide you and God will work it out, or do you spend your whole life and all your emotion trying to do what God should have done in your opinion, but he didn't work it out in your timetable? God says to his church, sleep, trust, surrender. For even God will guard us and build for us when we are in our most vulnerable situation when we sleep. Because the scriptures declare in the Psalms, the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. You know, this was a huge turning point for me a few years ago, and then especially in the last year, where God came and put his holy finger of conviction on my chest and asked me the question, why I thought I was responsible for certain things. I was with Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was speaking to a group of pastors, and he got up and, in his very regal, old-school way, said, Gentlemen and ladies, why do none of you rest? We are, of course, all pastors and very defensive. We sleep. What? You know. He says, No, none of you do. You're lying. And he was a professor and could say it like that, so you had to believe. And we were like, what are you talking? He said, listen. He said, you know the parable of the sower? Where it says he goes and he spreads all the seed out. And Jesus talks about this being like the kingdom. He says, and some of it's eaten by birds, and that's the evil one. And some of the seed grows up, it's choked out and burned. He describes all this, but he said, have you read all the gospel accounts of that? Because you've all missed one little line that will change your lives. And I'm like, what, what do you, t- you know, you're so deep. Tell me, Master. What do you, you know, Obi-Wan, what are you saying? And then he looks at me and us in this ballroom and he says, see, I think it's in Luke's account. He says, and after the man had sown, he went to sleep. He said, why are you all up at 3 a.m.? Who asked you to build your church? Who asked you to heal people's lives? Who asked you to bring the masses to Jesus? Your responsibility is to obey by your gift and spread the seed and then go to sleep because God is working it out. And immediately, it's like the heavens got ripped open and God's hand came down and said, you have touched my glory. You as a pastor have put the burden of people's walk with me on your shoulders and you have put the burden of the vision I have given you for 10,000 on your shoulders. Who asked you to do that? And I went, no one. He said, go to bed. And I did. When you come to the position that you trust God, not just love Him, Freedom is found. God comes in this song and he says to us what what power and freedom there is when trust replaces fear, when trust replaces worry, when trust replaces greed, when trust is given to God. Unless God 
Let me say it again, church, unless God, unless the God of angel armies, our Father, unless the Lord Jesus Christ, unless the Holy Spirit shows up, we will not see things really take place. This is a song sung by all people who walked with God and knew God and were going to the temple to meet Him. This was a song of preparation before invocation. This is a song sung by people that wanted to meet God. Here's my question, O oh church, do you really want to meet the God you sing to? Because if you do, he will walk into your house and into your city and into your worry and into your self-sufficiency and he will say, it is mine, not yours. God comes at this moment and he says, see, for church, self-sufficiency will never, ever do in my house. I'd ask now, God, literally for you to put that finger on people's chests in the next few minutes. Self-sufficiency is the worldview. I can deal with my life, and I can deal with family and church, and I don't need anyone else to help me really out. Self-sufficiency. Overwork, the idol overwork is I must do more, I must worry more, I must, I must continually have a life filled with restless self-activity. Why? Because, I don't know, no one else is going to show up. Do you trust God? Do you trust Him? I mean, this is what's facing us. Again, Lord, I ask, put your finger of conviction on people now, right on their chest so they know it's them, so they can be free. This is what the elders are facing right now. The pastors, all of us, who make up this church. Why do we do everything we do in this church and what we're about to do? Is it, is it for God's glory and other people's freedom or is it for other things? Is it that we want to be a bigger and better church so we can have a North American standard of success and say, look, look at us and look at all of you poor people who aren't catching up? Or do we really want God to build this house because we really want thousands of people to really meet Jesus and get eternal life and change the world? See, it's all about motive, everyone. Is it wrong to build a city? No. Is it wrong to build a house? No. Is bigger sinful? No. Building is phenomenal. Guarding is phenomenal. Good work is phenomenal unless it is not for God and his glory, unless we take his position. It comes down to one phrase. Note taking, put it down like this. Ownership versus stewardship. We don't own this church, you don't own your family, you don't own your kids, you don't own your spouse, you don't own your friends, you don't own your money. You do not own anything. God is the owner of everything. We are his stewards for a period of time. If you believe the lie that you own things, you will fight for them and you will not give them up. But if you know that they are not yours and when the living God shows up and says, now give them away, you will deal with joy. We have to be in the place where we say as a church, everyone ready? I am a slave to Jesus. I'm great with slavery. This church, this building, my future, my money, it's all his. Lord, come have your way. But it rises against everything we know. Everything we've been taught is the opposite of this. So here's how we're going to respond. We're going to take a moment to pray through these two verses since... This is actually a song of community. Since this was made for community, we'll do this. Now, for you online, you join us, and since God is outside of time and space, he'll see this as one act, so it's all good. No, seriously. So what I'd like you to do is this. Get in a posture that you need to, not that you're comfortable with, that you need to. So it could be this. You may need to kneel. You may need to stand. You may need to put your hands open and say to God, God, I'm open to what you're about to do. You, need, you may need to prostrate yourself, like get on your face. 
you need to, may need to sit. It's not about comfort. It's about what posture do you want to demonstrate to God right now? And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray through this, and then we're going to respond with communion. But let's just begin this way, okay? So just get into place. It's all good. Just get into place. Online, wherever you are, do it too. Because this, again, we don't just do church. God is here. We're here to meet with him. So here's the thing. We're going to pray through these verses, and we're going to pray them for you, for your family, and for the church. So let's just pray these things. God, we come before you, and we want to pray through this worship song. So here's the first thing. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So we want to admit right now before you as a whole church right now that we need you to build this house. And forgive us, Lord, for not believing that. So here's our prayer. Lord, I'm bringing myself to you right now as a person. You own me. You own me. You do what you want with your house and when. Forgive me for either overwork or self-sufficiency. Revive me. Renew me. Let me give my life and myself and all that I am to you. Hear our prayer. I want you to, in your mind, picture your family right now. Picture them in your family right now, adoptive or your own. Lord, look upon this family in our minds. You've got to build this house, Lord. Like, really, uh, some of our, our friends, uh, our, our relatives aren't Christians. You've got you to show up. There's so much bitterness and anger and secrets in some of our houses. Unless you show up, it's done. Right now, God, some people are praying to you, and they are saying, it's, it, like, we're done. My marriage is over. Uh, I, I hate my parents. Like, God, hear our prayer. Come build these houses. Because if you don't, we're just another statistic. Pray to God for your family right now. Lord, we give you our church. We come before you in this season and say, God, you need to build this house right now. We need you to move in such ways that we know it's always you and not us. We need you to come and build this house in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, financially, relationally, for your glory. Like God, build C4, because if we do anything that is not for you, it's going to be in vain, and it's going to be vanity, and it's not going to be worth anything. So God, we are saying, we're, we're in front of you as a church, and we're saying, God, revive this church, build your church, build our family. Without you, we are done. God, hear our prayer about our city. I want you to pray about you as yourself, asking for God's protection. God, I need you to come and protect our city. Some of you are praying right now to God, God, protect me from myself. Protect me from evil people. And we all ask that you'd protect us from the evil one. God, you guard our families. Get your family back in your mind for a moment. God, you've got to guard my spouse or my parents or my kids or my friends when I can't be there. You have to be the ultimate parent because I can't be. You've got to be the ultimate father when I can't be. 
You've got to be a good shepherd. Oh God, come and guard these cities. Defend the weak and the vulnerable. And break the power of the evil one in Jesus' name in our families. God, our church, we need you to guard C4 as a city because we can't do it. Guard our unity. Guard our reputation as a church. Guard our relationships that we, so we don't turn on each other. I pray right now, all of us pray, don't let one elder ever fall morally in this church. I pray for myself and Dave as we lead this church together. Lord, don't let Dave or I ever dishonor the name of Jesus, ever. Guard us, don't let us be seduced. Guard every pastor and staff member. Guard our, our people. Lord, in Jesus' name, guard us from people and situations we cannot handle and guard us from the evil one in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the whole church in Durham. We're not alone. There are so many who love you. And we pray, Jesus, be the wall for the church in Durham and the castle and the refuge as the demonic plot and scheme and darkness beyond the veil and as people with ugly motives want our demise. Stand for us, Lord, when we cannot stand and we do not know there is an enemy coming. I come to you, God of heaven and earth, and I pray alongside my church that I love and serve in, and I ask, look upon principality, power, ruler, and authority. See them now, O God. See what they are planning and doing, and we would ask you, not us, you, deal with them, O Lord. Break their power in the church and break their power in this region so people can trust in the Lord and not in themselves. Lastly, I pray this, and we do too. Help us during the season where you are about to do more significant things than we have ever seen to rest. Forgive us for self-sufficiency. Forgive us for overwork. Lord, renew us, revive us, awaken us in the name of Jesus. Lord, have your way in us. And all of God's people said, Amen.